Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. One of the litmus tests for me was like showing up at a Toastmasters and just giving this feel on the product. And then I remember one individual going like, do you have any samples? Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each and every week, you learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn what is the business model canvas and how to use it when designing a business, how to evaluate your product market fit, and why you should not say yes to any and all buyers. Today, I'm joined by Toby and Frank from Wipebook. Wipebook is a zero-waste office gear for those of us that have to write stuff down. It was started in 2013 and based at Ottawa. Welcome, guys. How's it going? How you doing? Good, good. Glad to have you guys on. So I talked very briefly, gave you a brief introduction about, uh, in general, the products that you guys have to offer. Uh, but can you give us a little more details on some of the, the flagship products that, that you sell? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, uh, we're essentially a producer of paper that erases like a whiteboard. And so we produce a wide variety of different products like notebooks and flip charts. Uh, and, and really, it's a, it's a really cool, iterative brainstorming tool uh, for, for techie people that like low-tech solutions uh, as well. Very cool. And where did this the idea come from? How did you guys come up with the idea of this particular, to solve this particular need? It's a it's a pretty funny story actually. Uh, where we both went to the University of Ottawa, and um, essentially, I I had this weird kind of phobia that I hated writing things down permanently uh, on paper. I just I I don't like to commit ideas down. I like that erasability, and so I would walk around in all my classes with this kind of laminated uh, notebook, and people thought it was kind of weird and bizarre. And then I met Toby in uh, in a class during our masters. And it was an entrepreneurship class, actually, and our prof kind of said, you know, pick a very simple idea that you can validate your idea. And uh, we kind of settled on on the white book and uh, kind of started it from there, essentially. Yeah, I mean, looking at the product now, it makes a ton of sense to have a product like this, but I've never seen something like this exist until, you know, uh, until coming across your, your, your business. So what did you guys do to, to validate this? It's obviously a problem that you had. How did you make sure that there was other, there were other people out there that had the same problem before you went any further with creating this business? So I think one of the, one of the, the infancy of kind of validation was, um, in this entrepreneurship class, right? So we formulated kind of this simple business model canvas. And then we, where we define our targets and all the other stuff that goes with the canvas. And uh, we just basically went out and got feedback to see, you know, for example, if the education space liked it, if engineers and techies liked it, or if kind of the the arts people liked it, and just kept moving on from there. Yeah. But one of the one of the bigger and I guess one of the key validation points was probably about a year into you know the white book journey uh when we launched a kickstarter and that's when we really truly validated sales at that point and that was a really freaky adventure because we had one prototype at the time uh and this was like a friday afternoon and you know we tried to raise about four thousand dollars you know very you know mediocre goal to just make a batch and see people who buy this thing and literally within the first 24 hours we we raised that you know four thousand bucks and within the first month we raised half a million bucks wow so that was for us that was the validation and and that was really viral and organic and it showed us that there was a, a clear market for something like this out there 
Yeah, certainly $500,000 is enough validation for any any business. Uh, before you got to that point, and what made you, what convinced you to even go with a Kickstarter? Like, What were you hearing from the education space, engineers? Like, what, were you, what kind of feedback were you hearing from them that made you both decide, let's give this a shot and, and put together a Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, initially, I think um, we were students at the time, so we we played around a little bit with you know student populations, like engineers like ourselves that that solve a lot of problems all the time. So we focused on them. Pancake breakfast. We we yeah <laughs> we would cook pancakes for students in the halls of the university and and try to get them feedback and see if they would they would uh, essentially buy uh, buy our products. Uh, we also like we're we were both professionals as well in our own kind of uh, space and. I uh, my job was in the education space. Uh, Toby's uh, job was in the intellectual property space. So we kind of tested with the demographics that we had access mm-hmm. to and and that we knew really well. And in both sectors, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of individuals that were like, "This is such a simple idea. Why didn't I think of that?" So that mm-hmm. was I think that was to say, "Listen, yeah. that was something that uh, that we should try out." One of the litmus tests for me was like showing up at a Toastmasters. And just giving this feel on the product. And then I remember one individual going like, do you have any samples? And I'm mm-hmm. like, no. And then I just threw it, well, what would you pay for it? Because right? at that point, we we're still trying to validate price point. And then he's kind of like, well, maybe 40 bucks. So, you know, you just get those little hints and stuff along the way that just keep you motivated and keep you going. Yeah, so it was enough to, to, to make you guys think, you know, why not? Let's try this out and try launches on Kickstarter. Um, so when you were going out and, and valid, trying to validate the, the product, you were specifically listening for, maybe asking if people would actually pay you for this product or were you asking other kind of um, other questions to, to get, get feedback or were you specifically focused on how much would they pay? Would they pay? Yeah. For, for me, that was a key point. Although uh, I, it kind of goes against the grain of like lean startup validation, you know, it's not all about sales. And I remember the prof highlighting that point at a couple of times, but for me, that was one of the key factors that I was looking for. And I always said, like, if some individual is looking to pull money out of their wallet or mm-hmm. money out of their jeans for something, then I think that's, that's a key indicator, right? Yeah. So we ended up buying a first batch of maybe 150 of these things and we just sold them, I think at like 30 bucks each mm-hmm. to validate whether or not, uh, you know, people would buy this thing and, that was before the Kickstarter. And yeah, it seemed to be a price point that, that worked. And the other thing you got to work out is, you know, you, you have a price point in mind initially, and then you need to have a sustainable business out of it. And then you're like, oh, well, there's all kinds of costs that you need to bake in. And so you kind of forced to increase your product uh, price from there as well. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to talk about how you came about the, the price in a second. Uh, one thing I do like that you, you did was that you actually were trying to sell this before Kickstarter. I think a lot of times the campaigns that are out there either don't even have a, a working uh, prototype yet or they or at least maybe nowadays they're more strict, but they don't have anything they can sell immediately. But you guys went out and and bought, uh, got, got these manufactured or put it together so that you could actually try to sell it before going on Kickstarter. What was that process? Like, how were you able to, to get 150 of these before launching the campaign? So these, yeah, this was like a minimal viable product uh, at the time. Like we had no intellectual property on this thing. These were like laminated paper notebooks that we just mm-hmm. went to a shop and got done. And, and for us, I mean, it was a very rough prototype. The stuff wouldn't even erase really well. Um, but at least we would validate with that minimal viable product. If, if somebody's willing to pay for something that's really, really rough, then if we really put the research and development into it, 
then we could probably validate that that there's a really big market for this. Yeah. And that ended up being the case. And it, it was fortunate, actually, because if you look into your own network, which is what we did, right? A good friend of mine, uh, Jimmy, actually ran a print shop. So I just went to him and said, Jimmy, hey, dude, can you do up 150 of these? And he did it. Nice. Yeah. I like that you use your network to, to do that. Uh, and were you getting any feedback while you were selling these 150 that, that uh, allowed you or that forced you to make adjustments prior to launching the Kickstarter campaign? It's, it's funny because in those pancake breakfasts that, uh, that mm. we mentioned, initially the book wasn't a dry erase book. It was a wet erase book. So you've probably seen those markers that you, know, you spray a little bit of water, like mm-hmm. those acetate pages. So initially the book was a wet erase notebook and we actually tried to launch it on indiegogo as a wet erase notebook and that failed completely as well but is in those those kind of times when we were cooking those pancakes and we had one prototype for a dry erase book so it wasn't like a, a plastic laminate it was actually uh, a varnish essential that that was applied to the pages so it would give it that dry erase kind of uh look and feel that people were like i really want a dry erase notebook like this is way more convenient than something where you got to spray water so that mm-hmm. was actually one big i think pivot in um mm-hmm. in our process before the kickstarter and we actually launched the kickstarter with the dry erase version and i think that actually did make a, a pretty big difference because we were listening to those students uh that were telling us that the dry erase was something that was really important to them yeah that's great that you were you, you ran into an obstacle and you recognized that or you saw that people weren't interested in the initial product that you came out with the the, the wet erase uh, version of it but you didn't just stop there and say this entire project this entire idea this entire business is a fail let's move on you look to see what kind of redeeming feedback you got from those experiences and then pivot it to go into a different direction and that's actually what took off yeah, because the indicators, if you, as you're going along the journey, right? If the indicators are still there, then you just you just pivot towards those beacons, man. Definitely. And you mentioned uh, something earlier. Uh, I think during your your courses, your coursework, which was around this business model canvas. W- what is the business model canvas? Go for it, Toby. <laughs> what is the model? <laughs> it's just a yeah. It's just a simple kind of uh, framework to just understand a very simple business that you'd like to validate there's a lot of um so yeah instead of having for example you know a 600 uh page business plan that this thing is a a simple one pager with kind of your key your key factors right so your cost structure your your target um key partners uh your value proposition is right in the middle of the the canvas and you're trying to validate messaging so like there's probably you know five or six key elements uh that you know come from Mm -hmm. reese lean startup philosophy that you just you have on a canvas and that you constantly look at as again as opposed to that 600 page doc yeah and then you're just trying to validate that yes the canvas makes sense maybe you plug in actually invalidate 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 each of the components of the the canvas right so you build little experiments and you're like all right well i my hypothesis is this is going to work with you know these these students and then you make an experiment to see if you were actually you know um you were you were right or you were wrong and then if you were wrong then you pivot to a new hypothesis and you keep going from there so it's built on like the lean startup uh, mm-hmm. kind of goals and yeah, yeah I'm sure it's uh, folks can can Google and look up the the canvas now when you are going through this process of writing down the initial hypothesis you're trying you mentioned that you're trying to invalidate each of these uh, 
pieces of the, of the canvas. Did you guys run into any of these uh, along the way? And what kind of changes were you were you making as you were running these experiments for all of for these different uh, touch for these different uh, I guess factors? Yeah, one of the key ones that pops out right away is uh, so we had mentioned three verticals that we wanted to hit up. Like one was you know techies in the professional space. We we name them the pros in the education space whether they were going to be teachers or students directly. And then another one was, you know, we call them the arts people, like people that would, you know, want to sketch and doodle and stuff like that. And we validated pretty quickly that this wasn't a product for like arts, arts type individuals. Yeah. It was more the tech, technical problem solvers that need to visualize stuff. Um, and that like was, as a key market, like, yeah. you know, as a beachhead, we're not saying that they will, ne- there's not a component of yeah. these individuals that don't like a product, but as a beachhead to, you know, get a business going off the ground, it For was, sure. wasn't one that we, it was one that we pulled off pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah and are you able to invalidate each of these factors uh, in isolation or in a, in a vacuum? Or are there situations where if one of these factors completely blows up and is completely invalidated, you have to scratch the entire I guess, hypothesis and start from the beginning? Yeah, I'm not sure because I one of the problems also with, with our product is that it, at the end of the day, we're dealing with, with erasable paper. Uh, and so paper is used in so many different industries and demographics. So it's I think for us, it's a little harder to kind of invalidate a market completely because you can still justify that, you know, paper is used in all kinds of demographics. Mm-hmm. But like Toby said, I mean, those in those three different demographics, in the education space, there was a need. It was clear in the professional space there was a need. There was less of a need from from the kind of artsy kind of communities. Um, but yeah, that's that's what we're we mm. kind of played around with. So I guess you know the the term there would be don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not. We wouldn't. We scratched it off, but we didn't. We didn't kill it, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes exactly. sense. So I think um, we, we talked a bit about how you ran experiments to, to test the, the target market by having these, uh, these pancake breakfasts and getting the feedback. Were there other experiments that you can think of that you ran to test the other factors? I think the big one was the Kickstarter, honestly. Like literally the, the class itself was like six months. And then we were almost saying to ourselves, let's give ourselves like a hardcore six months to really, you know, go knock it on doors to see if people would buy this thing. And we actually went to little, you know, bookstores and things like that and tried to pitch it to them. Um, those were some of the things, but the Kickstarter happened really, really early on uh, in our kind of validation process. So once the Kickstarter success happened, we were just thrown into this, this world yeah. of actually building a, a business and for actually like a good year two years we were still just like <laughs> still working through that that huge kind of uh initial success and we never really had the chance to retest out our markets and stuff like that because it's one thing to sell you know a one-time kickstarter but it's another thing to sell a, a, a sustainable business model right so th- we're we're coming back to our roots now and, and trying to revalidate some of those markets to to really hash out and, and understand the the space around like the education space, the the engineering techie mm-hmm. space. We're we're coming back to those basics now, but it, it it wasn't done really deeply in the initial stages because we had so much success. Just cir- I, I would say too soon. Yeah, and circling back a little bit, like even before the Kickstarter. So again, you know, if we're talking about marketing and getting stuff off the ground, a couple of things. One of the, I think for us again, well, for me anyway, in, in our, in my testing was like using, using my network, going to 
going through my network and I we ended up making a sale with uh, actually an IT company uh, that used it in their support. That's Not true. a huge bulk order, but it was maybe two or three hundred units. And even there, like we uh, and these, as French, uh, Frank alluded to earlier there, like these were very MVP products, right? We knew the erasability wasn't great. We knew there were issues with <laughs> it. Was but, hard to but, erase these things. So we got these out in this IT support group, and then I was able to get a survey from them after. And, you know, the survey, the, re the response rate was good. and, and That's uh, true, yeah. Yeah, like the survey results were, were pretty good, you know. So small sample set, though, still. But, you know, so again, that was just like little indicators and stuff that we could do pretty quickly, you know. But like Frank said, the real, the big one though was, was uh, the second or, or the third Kickstarter. Yeah, it sounds like very early on, at least, it was very much a work in progress throughout this entire pro entire journey, where you were selling products, so you were getting feedback on products, but you're still working through the design of this product. How were you able, was guys able to get comfortable with you know just shipping the product finally, or just getting it good enough to get it out into the market? <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, so this was the big debate, right? I'm I'm very much of a uh, a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. and Toby's a, a very pragmatic, get it out the door. And so if if it was only up to me, I would have been like, oh, let's let's keep like refining it mm -hmm. until it's the perfect, perfect, most yeah. perfect product ever. Uh, but if that was the case, we never would have shipped a product. Right. I think it was a nice balance between yeah. you know getting it to a certain point where it's like, all right, this is good enough. That we can ship it out the door better than good enough. I think the yeah. first, the first, yeah, the first few, and we did something interesting too, Felix. Like we we transitioned from that laminate, from that wet solution, say like pure wet, to our own film, and that that allowed us when we did that, it was we could cultivate our own recipe, you know, and mm -hmm. then then we can get we could uh, make up our own film and this thing comprised you know yeah. and he, we could really leverage toby's background as a chemical engineer to really get that, that and, formula working on and as we, a dryer and we could tweak it as we move along right so right we could so on a sustaining level we could really dial in on the product you yep. know make it better and make it better Got it. So it sounds like the, the factors that were most important, you guys made sure to 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 get right, and the others that might not have been as as important or as a as of a big piece of your core value proposition. Those are things that you can kind of figure out a little bit later along the way. Now the question then is, how do you decide which which is which? How do you decide which ones are are factors or or uh, you know properties of your product that need it? You need to get right versus others that are not as important. The problem with us is that I, uh, when I launched this Kickstarter campaign, I had promised people were going to get their books in uh, in January, and we <laughs> launched this thing in December. So there wow. was enormous pressure from like these eight thousand backers uh, to get their stuff in January. So that was we didn't really doubt it too much. We were really pragmatically trying to think about how do we fulfill you know these eight thousand orders uh, in sixty eight countries around the world. So. I don't think we thought about it that deeply at the time, uh, which we do more now. But <laughs> it was uh, more about executing. It was more good. execution, just trying to. Trying so that to deadline, that that pressure forced you guys to ship. Yeah, because exactly. then then we had a whole mess of other problems, right? So we were kind of geared up, like I mentioned earlier. So we were thinking, okay, Jimmy could probably <laughs> ramp up his production a little bit, and if we did hit four thousand units, he could do that. 
right? But I don't know the initial. I think we did 17,000 yeah, people 17, bought two or yeah, three. Was say, so say 20,000 units. So there's no way he could do that. So then we had to find another manufacturer. And then uh, 20, you know, we were initially dropping these things at the post office ourselves <laughs> or post office distribution centers in Canada, right? Well, there was no way that we could do that. And we had all kinds of logistic issues, right? So we had to get a, you know, a pick and pack facility online. We had to figure out, you know, which carrier we were going to use. So, yeah. yeah. And then we had to take, uh, the business wasn't really a, a real business. It wasn't incorporated. We and got then we the trademarks. Like, we got yeah, the patents. Yeah, we had trademark, patents. Uh, yeah. So it was just, it was pure chaos, man. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about this. I think there's um, something that I think it's like a success that leads to a lot more problems, right? Especially on, on crowdfunding campaigns where you have such a big surge of demand right from the beginning and you might not even have anything figured out yet uh, beyond just trying to get the, these products sold. So once you, the campaign was running, I had lots of success very quickly. How what, what, what went into action next to make sure that you were able to fulfill as quickly as possible? Yeah, a couple of things. Like one, it was manufacturing. Um, two, it was shipping. We didn't know how to ship this thing. Yeah. Uh, and the one that we totally underestimated was customer support. You know, when, <laughs> when you uh, when you deal with eight thousand people that want one on one conversations with the creators of the product, you realize there's a lot of resources yeah. allocated to that. Mm -hmm. so. And they're a Kickstarter community, right? They're backers, and they want uh, that's that's the thing about Kickstarter people yeah. they want to be involved and you want that you want feedback but you know your inbox like frank said the inbox yeah. is just like, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people so those were some things and at the same time we wanted to leverage this kind of success that we were having and we wanted to keep on selling our products so we had our shopify store on online right after as well so we wanted to keep on coming even after the Kickstarter was completed because we had so much good momentum going. Yeah, and so I think Shopify really allowed us to uh, to do that really well. Yeah, it was really interesting actually because we could see that that the traffic was coming in and we didn't have. I think we had the old version posted on our like the real. First yeah, yeah, the original page. laminated yeah, one. Yeah. And then just after the campaign ended, I remember I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to put this up. I'll put it up on Shopify like our new product and." which kind of use the same verbiage or the same language as like the Kickstarter and like within 15 minutes it hit. And this is like purely organic, right? Like there's no marketing, there's no like Facebook ads or anything like that. It just, you know, just traffic Sheer coming viral. inbound. Yeah. Inbound right. traffic coming in just right away. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, we getting Shopify hits. So, so yeah. we still, so this is happening concurrently with, you know, we were probably at the time doing happen. like 50 grand a month, maybe mm -hmm. in, in Shopify sales yeah. that we had to deal with as well, compound that with our Kickstarter to get out, you know, so. Now, what, what kind of supply chain did you put in place now? Is it manufacturing something you had to figure out? And you, you, you mentioned that you had to fulfill the product to 68 different countries. Like what, what was the solution to help you organize all of this? Um, yeah, there was a couple, I mean... Few options, few options, and we we haven't kept a lot of those options uh, <laughs> because we iterated through. Like for example, mm -hmm. shipping, we start by offloading it to like a third party pick and packer uh, based out of Montreal, and that didn't work out. Well, actually, it worked out because they made a mistake initially, and instead of uh, paying like twenty dollars per shipment uh, to all these countries, it was actually costing them eighty dollars to ship it in all these different countries. 
So their mistake ended up saving us quite a bit of, of money at mm-hmm. the end of the day. But they were just not reliable uh, at, at all uh, in terms of fulfillment. And so we ended up then moving to another third-party provider. I think it was Shipwire, which was uh, – they had a warehouse in like Chicago and London and, and uh, Toronto as well. And so we were shipping – from a bunch of different warehouses, but that was really difficult for inventory management. Like, let's say you you send a whole whack of skids over to London. Well, they're kind of stuck there if ever your warehouse in Chicago yeah. is is empty. So inventory management, it was really, really and macroeconomics. Awesome. Macroeconomics played a role too because yeah. uh, Shipwire was USD and then Canadian dollar was pretty high at the time. We were pretty much at par and then the dollar, Canadian dollar dropped pretty quick. Yeah. You know, got down to like, anyway, so... It did. The numbers didn't work, make sense after a while. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then we ended up uh, the consolidating. Solution, yeah, and then the solution we have in place now is we have our own little shop here in Ottawa, and essentially we have a, a team here, and they they fulfill all the orders all 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 the day, and we're close enough to the states that um, we can actually get it into the the U.S. system pretty easily. So yeah. that seems to be a good solution that's working for us so far. So that's and, the shipping side. And internationally, we just found. <laughs> That trying to open up a product to basically anybody in the world, yeah. not a good idea. Yeah, not a good idea when you're promising five dollars shipping anywhere in the world yeah. initially because you think you're going to have you know. Yeah. So that orders. that was a lot of issues. Mm. So what what do you do today? Did you do you just limit the, the 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 countries that can purchase the product? How do you get around? How do you solve for that that issue of ex- exorbitant you know shipping costs? hundred uh, percent. So basically, we just you know looked at our you know. Looked at our database, defined I think top ten or something yeah, countries, just, and yeah. we put the actual cost of shipping uh, to um, to other countries. So some of the other kind of unique things that we are piloting as well are, are some social shipping campaigns. Where, uh, for example, if if groups of individuals in London, if if you have a team in your office, then everybody wants to try a white book. Then we we program some stuff on Shopify's back end where. You know, everybody could make their own individual order and the shipment all comes to the same location and, and you cut down on, on shipping costs. It just gets divided by a bunch of people. So we, we started some playing around with some novel stuff like that. Um, but yeah, those are some of the mm-hmm. solutions that. We'll and, then, and then in terms of manufacturing, it was just a question of finding the right manufacturer. The initial manufacturer that we had yeah. Uh, just, yeah, I just. You know, totally it, ignored the process. So. Yeah, we have it like this is our own specific proprietary film. We have a recipe. We have a process that we we need to follow in order to get the desired end product. Say, and he, you know, just wasn't <laughs> doing that. So then we tried another manufacturer, and they were doing the same thing. And well, we have a good, the you know, third kind of kick in the can, I guess, or fourth yep. different manufacturer that we iterated through, and uh, we've got a pretty good relationship with the. Yeah, I think the the relationship building with your suppliers is a really really important one because you want to be able to trust that they're gonna they're gonna make a and they're gonna produce a quality product for you. Um, and you know it's it's now based out of Ottawa, which is really easy for quality control and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, and they have to be sold on your vision too, right? Obviously, we're still we're a growing company, but we're not Apple, you know. So the you know the account reps at these companies and stuff. And you, as as an entrepreneur, right? You've got to. They they have to buy into your vision. And say, yeah, look, there's here. We're this is where we're going, man. Like you guys need to come along for the ride. 
So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you guys got pretty beat up along the way to, to get to where you are today, but it speaks to your resiliency and sticking it through. And now when you are going through this process of finding third-party logistics, uh, well, it sounds like you, you have a solution today, but let's say there are others out there that are going through this process. What was important to, to you guys back then? Like, what, what, were you, what were you looking for to determine if they would be a good partner or not to, to be your provider? Yeah, for shipping, it was kind of, we we just played around with cost. Cost, <laughs> shipping is like, nobody loves shipping. Uh, shipping is until we have, you know, autonomous cars that are electric and it exponentially drives shipping costs down. Uh, I think we're still all going to have to deal with the, the pain of shipping. So cost mm-hmm. is the big one. So providers that are able to provide, um, you know, reliable service uh, with a low cost, some things that, that, with some third-party providers was really difficult is the pick rates are often yeah. really, really high. So if like, for example, shipwire was a difficult situation because if you wanted to, for example, put a piece of paper additionally in the box, they would charge you like three, four bucks as a pick. Um, and that seems to be the business model that a lot of uh, shipping third-party shippers kind of use. They For every item that goes in the box, you're paying an additional couple of bucks, right? For a piece of paper, it costs three dollars per per shipment. Oh yeah, exactly. Wow. Any add on, any add on, a pen, a freebie, a coupon. You know, any, anything that go additionally in the box that's inventoried in their system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a couple of bucks, so that makes it really difficult. But mm-hmm. when when we migrated over to sharing a warehouse with another company, we we started an agreement where it was paid per hour. So we were paying for the number of hours. Um, that the uh, the employee was pick and packing for us. So then we could really hone in and say, well, if we can make this process really, really efficient, because uh, we had a lot more control, we had control in a warehouse, then we could we could really save on on shipping logistics and shipping costs. And so that's what we initially did. Yeah. Uh, and then we kind of implemented those same strategies with our own warehouse now. Yeah. So what we ended up we we contacted Shopify. And said, you know, uh, uh, contact Shopify support. Said, this is what we're looking to do. Can you guys recommend, you know, some fulfillment software? They yep. ended up uh, uh, Shopify support ended up recommending uh, ShipStation. Yeah, which which rocking. integrates awesome with uh, Shopify. So we ended up using that, using a lot of their automa- automation rules, like Frank said, and, yep. and really just dialed in on the on the fulfillment. You know, mm-hmm. process. Yeah. So. And the great thing about, I think, both Shopify and the ShipStation combination was that even if they didn't have a feature that uh, we, they, even if they didn't have a feature that we needed, we're techie enough to be able to tap yeah. right into the API and build something ourselves nice. to make that happen. So those were kind of when we're, when we were looking for services, we were looking for, for stuff that gave us enough flexibility because now we're selling with providers like uh, Costco, Walmart, uh, mm. uh, Staples as well, and they all have their unique processes to ship stuff out, which we couldn't use with a third-party provider because it's too limited in, in terms of flexibility. But with our own kind of shop and our own kind of features um, and our kind of techie brains, we were able to just you know yeah. hack solutions in place to be able to plug into different different channels. So really that's really a, that, that's a big lesson learned for anyone out there that that's looking at third-party fulfillers, right? The thing with these guys is, and I'm not knocking. I mean, they you, you, they have to make money because they're volume based. They'll get you know crazy sh- uh, ship rates, but they have to make their money somehow. And the the way that they do it is on the pick and pack, right? So you have to watch for those how they're gonna you know 
the little value adds on or negative value adds on their side. You know? Right. Exactly. That makes sense. Now, one thing you mentioned was that that a lot of the time early on, you weren't able to find a reliable fulfillment uh, partner. Are you able to determine that kind of reliability before you work with them, or is that something you only learn after the fact? Yeah, I think you you kind of meet up with them initially, and you we 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 visited a couple of people actually, and and a lot of times it was like upfront. Do you have this level of flexibility if we have orders, for example, staples that need their own custom slips and stuff like that, which is what we were dealing with uh, at the time? And a lot of third-party providers just said, "Sorry, you know, we we we." Well, first they'll say, "Yeah, yeah, we can do it." And then you, when you dig a little deeper, you realize, no, they actually can't do it. And so that eliminates a whole whack of people. Um, but I think it's it's just about meeting those people and, and getting references to. Yeah, betting, you know, vetting game through your network. Exactly. And we have a couple of companies that we deal with in Ottawa uh, that also do pick and pack. And we kind of share, uh, you know, who are the good providers, who are not the good providers. And sometimes we kind of jump onto similar solutions that work really well for one particular individual. So, so you know, connecting with other companies locally that might might be doing the same kind of shipping logistics uh, might be a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And now that you use ShipStations today, you mentioned that you use a lot of the automation features. What, what are some of the out-of-the-box automation that maybe the tech-savvy folks out there that might not be able to hook into the API? What are some of the out-of-the-box automation that, that you guys like to use? Yeah, I think it's just shipping a whole whack of orders <laughs> automatically. I see. Uh, it just makes the process really really straightforward yeah their their batching functionality is really cool uh so yeah you can you batch your orders and simply print off the labels you know 100 orders 50 orders whatever uh another thing that we have set up is uh we make use of a lot of the autom- a lot of automation rules uh yeah that stem so they run down from shopify and then go in go into ship station we pick it up so for and then that you know, for example, the package dimensions are automatically set by the automation rule. Um, mm-hmm. la, la, the HS codes, all, yeah, just everything you need to do for shipping is actually, I was actually surprised when Toby kind of proposed this solution. I was like, I'm really hesitant. I don't think there's going to be one provider that has yeah. mm-hmm. everything. And they have really everything I yeah. think you need for a really flexible solution and uh, like i said like toby said the automation rules uh, are a really good one especially because weights and dims automatically yeah. setting the weights and dims yeah. and then how that and then from there you know that correlates to which packaging we use in-house so yeah i mean they got a mess of different features like right up front you know very cool. Now, you mentioned something earlier on about how there is a difference in in either a launch or a Kickstarter campaign versus running a, a business that has sustainable sales. Now that you've transitioned into this this new world of sustainable sales, what was that like? What, what, what had to happen to, to get into this new uh, stage of your business? Yeah, I think it's... You go from a world where you're organically getting sales to a mm-hmm. world where you have to invest time and resources into, you know, systematically investing a dollar here and you'll get two dollars there. Um, I think we're still we're still working through that journey because one of the things is our product is really great for a lot of different markets, and we're trying to see which market is is going to be mm-hmm. the the winner uh, sooner than later. So right now we have a lot of really good traction in the education space. 
with uh, school boards, uh, with giant flip charts that we produce. So for us, it's really like identifying the right conferences and stuff like that. The right channels, for example, like Twitter is a really good one that's conducive for teachers. So it's really building those systematic marketing efforts that will actually enable you to invest $1 and get $2 back. So I think that's the big difference between, you know, our, our, our big one-offs initially uh, and some of the channels that we have now. It's, it's, it's really how do you kind of invest that time and effort right. into developing a formula, essentially, where you put X amount of dollars and X amount of time in and you get X amount of output. And we're still, I mean, we haven't figured everything out. We're, it's still a very much an entrepreneurial journey for us. Um, but, uh, but that's the, that's the goal, right? To make a machine out of it. Um, and I think all our processes really, cause if you look at the way we look at the world, the way we look at things, you know, maybe we're a little too engineering at times, but even, even in a business, right? we look at a business, like it's a bunch of systems, you know, like if, if functionally you look, you have your, you know, your fulfillment, your logistics, your production. So then it's, you know, the, the machine is still pretty loose, but, you know, in terms of operations, like weekly, we go through, okay, we're going to dial in on this component of the business this week and mm-hmm. uh, you know, this operational. So it's constantly going back, t- tweaking the screws and, and tweaking the system and just making the whole making the whole of it tighter. And the one thing that you realize is, like, oh, it's almost parallel, right? You know, like these components have to work in concert, really, to, to make a a really solid business. If one of these, if one gear is really loose over here, <laughs> it messes with a lot of different stuff, you mm-hmm. know? So and you don't, you don't know these things really when you're just, when you're kicking off, you think, Oh, I just make a bunch of crap on Kickstarter and there's interest and you sell it. And then, but yeah. Yeah. You definitely have to build that system, which is what you, what you're talking about and be able to feed it with, you know, with time and, and of course capital to, to get it to grow. And one other thing I'd like that you mentioned was, was the idea that if you, if you try to serve everyone, you end up serving nobody where you are, you could be in any market where everyone needs a product like this in, in, in any industry, but you have to focus and, and, and zoom in on one particular need, one particular market. How are you able to determine this? Like, what are you looking at to say this, is the market we should focus on, even though it means that we are not going to be winning, uh, you know, the dollars in a different market. But, but but by focusing on this one, we can grow the business. Yeah, I think for us, the, the that's interesting. So interesting that you say that. It's it's pretty much what we're working on right now. We're we're looking at all our channels, and we look at all our revenue that comes in, and it comes in in all kinds of different channels. And actually, the 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 channels that we're focusing more on are the ones where we didn't have as much revenue as the other ones, but there's really, really tight product market fit. And because there's really, really tight product market fit, we think that that's going to be able to, to develop a more systematic, uh, sustainable business. Out yeah, of it. that, and we, we, we pivoted. We, we think it's easier, like in a business context to be in a B2B world. It's more predictable. Mm-hmm. You have better growth. So yeah, product market fit being one of them and just recurring business, right? Because it takes time. There's customer acquisition. There's a lot of energy to acquire a customer. So, you know, if, and that's a component that you mm-hmm. have to look at. So if, if you take time in front. What are you looking at to determine that that it's a particular market is it has a, a tighter product market fit? Yeah, I think for us, it's it's. In the education space is the big one that we're kind of looking at right now. Um, we're, we're seeing and we understand exactly why p- 
people are buying this. We understand the need that they have. So for us, it's the big need in the education space with our flip charts is that, you know, whiteboards are really, really expensive. And a lot of new uh, new education strategies rely on having whiteboards all over your classroom, particularly mm-hmm. in math, particularly in math. And so that's a really, like, really, really big problem that they're having in the education space. And we just fit right in. It's, it's almost like it's a, it's a perfect match for a product. Whereas other channels, we're selling a lot of good stuff, but we don't really fully understand as much why people are buying it. We don't like, we know people love it and they're using it on a daily basis, but it's used for so many different little things that it's hard to hone in on one big major product market mm-hmm. fit that aha so for example like with the techies is it a whiteboard is it eco is it a brainstormer like all these little like they might sound like little nuances but it really makes like in your messaging that really impacts if you're trying to acquire a new customer like yeah. that really changes the the transaction right exactly but whereas in, in education we know it's engagement we know like Teachers want this in their classroom because whiteboards are more mistake-friendly, more engaging for kids, easier to write down. And we are a disruptive solution in there. Like right. it's way easier to put a white, uh, a white chart. Yeah, a flip chart, you know, a dry erase, you know, piece of paper on the wall than it is to install a big, giant, clunky whiteboard. Right? Yeah, exactly. And you're not talking about creating or changing a product. You're talking about how do you message the, the product? Well, we've we've done both. Yeah, uh, you do both. Mm-hmm. You, we've done both. You kind of hone in on the the kind of especially like for example, the flip chart ones were specifically designed in parallel with the schools that were saying, well, the notebooks are great, but what if you had like a really giant, huge one that replaced our conventional flip charts that are just like you write on them and you put them in the garbage. Uh, so you kind of do that. Yeah. You you do the product development at the same time, and you kind of tweak the messaging to to. Yeah. kind of figure out what they want to hear and what they they want out of a product. I think if you leave the product static, you it's it, that's a mistake. Yeah. You got to listen right. and, and and tweak it and and iterate until you get. And once you I you know, once you get that perfect product market fit, man, yeah, you're rocking. <laughs> then you're nice. rocking. Now, what about the the, the differences in, in how you market or where you market compared between B2C compared to to B2B? Yeah, B2B is interesting because there's a lot more like your conventional sales tactics, like your salesman uh, going to trade shows and conferences and uh, for the education space, for example, you know, going to meet the people in the different school boards and the different schools. So it's a lot more like on the ground, um, you know, knocking on doors and stuff like that. But you onboard a client and then it's a recurring kind of, um, you know, hopefully recurring uh, channel for you. Um, I think B to B to C is more, you know, more your conventional social media channels, which did yeah, pure digital. Whereas I think we, when we look at B to B, it's more like more of a hybrid solution, right? Yeah. So you get, you get the message out there and then they're qualified somehow customers qualified and they come in and then it's more of, you know, like Frank saying more of a old school tactic where you Conversation, call up, call up, up. And, you know, and uh, the the other thing is uh, sales cycle is, is longer. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, you know, one hit type thing. It's more, it's definitely a longer cycle. Yeah. Sure. Like you try to understand, yeah, the cycle, like for the education space, you see the little blips 
at different times of year, which are not the same blips as, for example, Christmas time when you are selling, you know, via uh, your your online website to people looking for cool gifts for Christmas. It's totally different cycles, right? So you try to understand the different cycles for the different types of businesses, and you you kind of go from there. Right, because they all set their budgets and they do all they do all their buying at different times. So, do you work with a good distributor, or do you have an in in house sales team? How do you go after the B two B clients? Yeah, the B two B clients is is different. I think we do most of the stuff ourselves. Uh, we've onboarded kind of uh, kind of big retail partners like Staples, uh, Costco, and uh, and Walmart by specifically you know making cold calls and getting meetings with uh, with the. The category managers and kind of using their retail um, channels as as you know good venues for us. Um, and the other stuff is yeah, just figuring out who the targets are and going to set up meetings to to identify who uh, who you want to talk to and going to trade shows. You get a whole bunch of leads, you get a whole bunch of business cards, and you follow up with with uh, with phone conversations and things like that. And Gromit Gromit Wholesale, we we that was another good one too. Yeah, yeah. What what is that? Gromit. Uh, we, we sell a lot of product to Gromit actually. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys, but they're an online reseller, I guess. And they have their own, uh, in-house distribution, um, as well. So we move, move product through them through kind of, we label them as like uh, tier two retailers, you know, so small novelty shops, but they're not ordering one-offs through Gromit, they're ordering like, you know, 20 units, 30 units at a time. I see. Yeah. So you sell to, to Gromit, then the Gromit's uh, clients are retailers, like physical brick and mortar retailers that are buying from, from their catalog? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Is that, is that easy to get into? Like, what was the process of getting into, into a, a place like, like Gromit? Gromit was interesting, actually, because they had contacted us a number of times after the Kickstarter and... Uh, like we were doing analysis on our database and stuff, our Shopify DB and, and stuff. And the, the sales rep from Gromit was, uh, he was like, yeah, I think your product, product would be really conducive for our demo. And I'm like, who's your demo? He's like, Pre- predominantly women, 40 plus, 44 to 55 uh, Professional. professionals. And I'm like, that's not our target. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> And then he came back a couple of times and he's like, yeah, I think your product would do really well. So then finally I was like, okay, so let's set up a little test here. And uh, we, you know, so we got their stuff, got online, did a little video and they launched it on their site. So, you know, Gromit's kind of like a tier two Kickstarter, right? So it's, it's kind of like Kickstarter, but more like validated products. Anyway, so it goes on goes on their site and yeah we again it, it just kicked off yeah and you had to be approved to get on on gromit or or did they yes. okay yeah you deal with their rep and stuff yeah. like that deal with their rep and as i said so what they do they they look at kind of novelty products kickstarters that have moved along maybe a year mm-hmm. in so they're defined in their processes you know all those hurdles that we talked about earlier you know that we made it through. So the grandma says, okay, these guys are, you survived, <laughs> you survived that looks like you can reproduce. We may be able to use you in your, in our wholesale channels. So you're, you're on your way to being a legitimate business. Uh, you know, okay, we want to work with you, whatever. Soda stream, I think was a big grommet, uh, product. They, they did a lot of stuff there. So anyway, we worked with, it was like the irony, you know, I had the blinders on. And I'm like, you know, the professional women, not our, not our target. But we ended up 
we sold, a, I think I got some stats from the rep the other day. And last year, uh, they sold a half a million dollars worth of our stuff. So, wow. Uh, Good channel. Good channel for yeah, everybody. Good thing you, you eventually said yes. Now, now, that leads to my next question. Like, What is the harm of just saying yes to anybody and everybody that wants to come buy from you, whether they hear about you from a trade show or from you online? Cycles. Cycles, man. <laughs> just cycles on our side, right? It's just investing time and effort. You just got to mm-hmm. identify the ones that you're, you're going to have an ROI out of it, uh, return on investment. Um, because you can get, we get a lot of emails all the time. Oh, can we sell this through our channels that we don't know who you are? So you kind of vet them a little bit to understand if, if they're really legitimate or just some random Joe blow, cause you can get really caught up in wasting a lot of, a lot of cycles on, uh, on you know, distributors, distributors and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right, that makes sense. Now, when you are when you are running the business, whether they whether it's uh, through the Shopify side or or just trying to tie all the the pieces of the the entire system together, are there any tools or applications that you rely heavily on? It's funny because uh, Toby's very much of a let's plug any app uh, mm-hmm. in right away, and I'm a not necessarily, <laughs> and I'm more of a I'm a more of a hesitant. No, we got to do everything ourselves. So mm-hmm. for us, any I think most of the stuff, if we've had a little issue, I've developed a little homegrown something to kind of plug and, and resolve yeah. that issue. I don't know, like ShipStation is one that we heavily rely on. Zendesk. Zendesk for customer support is another really crucial one. Uh, QBO. Yeah, QuickBooks Online uh, for accounting. Um, those are the big ones. I think that's... Pretty much it. And everything else is really, like I said, we, uh, you know, we're engineers. So, you know, if a, if a service has an API, it's like you, you get all excited and you're like, ooh, what can I build to solve my issues? Um, Frank is like white book Zapier. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Piece it all together. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Toby and Frank. So wipebook.com, W-I-P-E-B-O-O-K.com is the website. What do you guys have uh, planned for this year? What are some of the, the goals that you want to uh, accomplish this year? Yeah, I think uh, we have an app coming out in the next couple of weeks that'll be able to kind of digitize your white book and save it in the you know in your services like uh, mm-hmm. Google Drive, Dropbox, I think Evernote as well. So that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, and we really want to sell more of these uh, flip charts to the education sector. And uh, we have some cool new versions of our notebooks uh, coming out uh, as well. Very cool. Thank you again so much for your time, guys. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Good one. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. The cool thing about Facebook Live is that, you know, people want to engage with you. They want to know the face behind the brand. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com blog.